Good morning, glad you're here. We're in James. We're going to start our study there. We'll do the introduction in verse 1. The title is, A Slave Really. If you would stand for reading of one verse. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. You may be seated. Thank you. Father, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the truth of your word. Help us to learn from you, Holy Spirit, what you want for us today. Speak to each heart that is here. Words of encouragement, words of comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. James, the theme, the theme of James is genuine faith produces genuine works. Genuine faith produces genuine works. Now, when you think of slavery, that has a very negative connotation. It's awful to be a slave to another person, to be a slave to another country, to be a slave to a, to a sin, to, to be exploited for power and control and self-benefit. However, a slave of the Lord Jesus is very different, is very different. There's nothing like it. A slave of the Lord Jesus is a willing slave. All slaves of Christ are free. Remember that. All slaves of Christ are free in John 8, 36. If the Son has set you free, you shall be free indeed. Free from the slavery of sin and free to serve God freely. Okay. So introduction. Now most of you have a study Bible. All of this is just taken out of the front of a study Bible. So this would be uh, not in-depth information for you, but it will give you kind of a a segue into the book of James. So first of all, the title indeed is James. He is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. So the author is James. And this isn't James the son of Zebedee. James the son of Zebedee was, was one of the sons of thunder. Peter, James, and John were the inner circle. That James is, is, is not the one that we're talking about as, as, as the author here. The author is the half-brother of Jesus. However, James the son of Zebedee He's one, of, he's one of four James in the New Testament. There are two apostles that were called James. The James that got beheaded and then James the Lesser. So James the Greater and James the Lesser. Both of those were apostles. James the half-brother of Jesus was the third one. And then there's a guy in Luke 6.16 that was named James. And he's the father of Simeon, one of the, one of the apostles. So those are the four guys. But I want to emphasize here for just a second the James the son of Zebedee. James the son of Zebedee the brother of John. And the reason I want to emphasize him is because he was the first one that was martyred. And James is really written to a persecuted church. Many people were being martyred. James was the first one that was martyred. We see this in Acts chapter 12, his martyrdom. In verses 1 and 2, we read this. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass from some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, probably beheaded him. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also, and he wanted to chop off Peter's head, but that was not God's plan. See, God is in control. God is sovereign. An angel actually lets Peter out of his, of, his, of his cell. But I want you to consider that the persecution that the early church went through is hard to imagine. The harassment they went through, having to hide, having to, having to scurry around to avoid the persecutors. Paul, in particular, was a vicious persecutor of the church. And Herod was the first one to kill one of the apostles by lopping off his head. 
And Herod loved what was going on. I want you to think about something. When Satan persecutes the church, when Satan persecutes the church, he uses two methodologies. Number one methodology, number one strategy, he comes as a roaring lion. And he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his modus operandi. That's the first thing that he wants to do. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we have Peter telling us how to deal with the roaring lion. He says, be sober. That means be, be awake. Be aware. Be vigilant. Aware. Because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking who he may devour. Remember, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his number one method. Resist him. Resist him. Stand against him. There's no neutral ground in this fight. Resist him how? Steadfast in the faith. I will trust in the Lord until I die. I will trust in the Lord until I die. You got that right. Steadfast in the faith. Notice that you're not binding Satan. You're not making slanderous accusations against Satan. You are standing fast in the faith. That's how you deal with with Satan's strategy when he comes to persecute, steal, kill, and destroy. But he has a second way that he comes. And the second way that he comes is as a serpent, as a wolf in sheep's clothing. He comes slithering into your church or slithering into your life. And his op the way that he operates there is not trying to kill, but with deception. With deception. Slithering into a church on notice, masquerading as an angel of light, as we see him in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 13 through 15. Masquerading as an angel of light and his ministers as angels, as light. There are people that are ministers that are on Satan's team. Masquerading. Masquerading. The way that you deal with him, that, that when he comes in that mode, is in Jude verses 3 and 4. Let me just read this to you. Jude was going to write a letter that had to do with the common salvation of men. The Spirit of God changed the direction, and he changed it to him writing to contend earnestly for the faith. So you see in verse 3, he says, Contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to all the saints. That word contend means to fight for the truth. Fight for the truth, church. You fight for the truth. You don't let lies come in. You fight for the truth. For certain men have crept in. And that word crept in the Greek is stealth. Stealthy. They've come in unnoticed, crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for condemnation. These were ungodly men. So his second way that he comes in is undercover. And his goal is to deceive. Now, I will ask you this question. Which way has he been the most successful in the world? When you persecute the church, what happens to the church? It disperses and it grows. And that is what has happened to the church throughout the epochs of time. But when he comes with deception, the church caves and looks more and more like the world to impress the world. And the true church shrinks. Think about the United States of America and what has happened to the church and its impact in this culture. Think about Great Britain. Think about Europe. Think about Australia. Think about what has happened in the, in, in, in the world that we live in, where the church has shrunk. Now, it has grown in persecuted countries. See, when persecution comes, the church grows. In Iran, it's booming. In Iraq, it's booming. We have a church that's growing. In Africa, the church is growing. 
But in, in places where he comes with deception, it is in that persecution, it is diminishing. It is diminishing. So with that stated, this group of people that James is writing to are under intense persecution, and they are in the diaspora. They are being dispersed all throughout the world, all throughout the land. And I want you to think about this. James is writing this. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up in the carpenter's home in Nazareth. He moved to Capernaum when Jesus began his public ministry. We see that in John chapter 2, verse 12. Like his brothers, all of his siblings, his brothers and probably his, and his sisters, did not believe in him. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And, they, and even to the point, it, turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. I want you to see something that is very significant, what his brothers saw, thought of him. John chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. I don't know if you've ever picked up on this, but this is an interesting little tidbit of Scripture. John chapter 7, verse 1, he says, After these things, metatauda, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. When he says the Jews, it's talking about the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and that sort of thing. They want to kill Jesus, so he's staying up in Galilee where it's safe. Verse 2, now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. Now notice it says it's the Jews' feast of the tabernacle, not God's feast of the tabernacle. The nation is already in apostasy already going through the forms of worship but denying the power thereof. They are, it's no longer called God's feast days, but it's called the Jews' feast days. And the Feast of Tabernacles is one of three compulsory feasts that a Jewish male has to get to Jerusalem to, to, to take if he can. He has to partake of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Those are the three feast days. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16. They have to go there. Jesus fulfilled all the law perfectly. So Jesus has to go to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, where there's intense persecution, intenseness of people looking for him. They want to eliminate him. Now watch the dialogue here with his brothers. His brothers, verse 3, therefore said to him, Depart from here and go to Judea. Now what do his brothers want Jesus to do? that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing, for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Let everybody know. He's already done this. He's already done enormous things before all people. He's already demonstrated he's the Messiah. For even his brothers did not believe in him. They wanted him to go down to Jerusalem in order to be caught by the Jews. Isn't that amazing? Your own brothers wanted this from you. They did not believe. In Mark chapter 6, verse 1 through 4, it says this, the prophets are not accepted in their own country. Now, I want you to think about something. Can you see why your faith as a believer might be a problem within your family? Might be a problem within your family. Think about this. In Luke chapter 12, verse 49 through 53, Jesus says these words. I came to send fire on the earth. He's talking about judgment. He's talking about judgment. How I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. He has to go to the cross. He has to die for the sins of the world first. How distressed I am till it is accomplished. You don't, you don't think that Jesus was fully man? 
He, was, he knew what lied ahead of him, and he was distressed by that prospect of what was ahead of him. Do you suppose that I came to bring peace on the earth? I tell you, not at all. This is the words of Jesus, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and on and on it goes. You get the picture. There's going to be division in the family. Why? Because the kingdom of darkness hates the kingdom of light. And it's the reason why many times your holidays and special events with family are so difficult. Different kingdoms, different kings, different rulers, different ways that people are approaching life. And it, and it's very common. And it was the same in Jesus' family. This was a holiday. This was a feast of tabernacles, and they wanted his, their, their brother to go down and to face the music. They did... It, it, it's an amazing thing to me, an amazing thing. So, with that said, background, background. The recipients of the book were Jewish believers who had been dispersed by persecution. We've, we've said, said that. Probably started with Stephen's persecution. Paul was intense persecutor of the church. But Herod, it kind of peaked with Herod in Acts chapter 12. The author audience is Jewish. He calls them brethren 15 times. It has a very strong Jewish content. There are 40 allusions to the Old Testament and 20 to the Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Again, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he did not know, it did not believe in Jesus, not accept him for him being the Messiah until after the resurrection. Paul and James had a different view of Christianity. And it's so different that James was one of the books that was, that was not accepted until very late. It was, a, one of the first, it was the first one written between 44 and 49 A.D., but it was not accepted because it was so contrary, people thought, to Paul's teaching. However, I'm going to show you that they were very similar and actually the same. So Paul and James had a different view of Christianity. Paul looked at it from a spiritual view and James kind of looked at it from a Jewish view or more of a, a legalistic view or a law view. So, Paul preached justification by faith in Christ. James taught that we will show good works in our, in our daily walk if we are saved. If we are saved. Now, I want you to know that in truth, these are the same. Because Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast, but we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So doing good works after salvation, both of them are emphasizing. So there's no difference really in their message. There's no difference in their message. Now historical themes. Historical themes are this. The theme of faith and works surfaces repeatedly. James presents these subjects not as conflicting values, but as complementary. For James, faith may be either saving faith or a profession of faith, which is not saving faith, much like people use today. For Paul, faith is faith. But for James, faith may, may be genuine or it may be false. It may be spurious. Hence, James demands that faith must demonstrate itself to be real. Therefore... 
James, for James, it is not merely faith and works, but a faith that works. A faith that works. And again, that is congruent with Paul's teaching, justification by faith. James just goes a step farther and says, if you're really justified, if you're really saved, that your life is going to show it. And so James took a lot of heat for that, but eventually got into the canon of Scripture. James makes many statements on wise living, and it's actually called the book of Proverbs, or the book of wisdom of the New Testament. He makes many allusions to the environment around him. He, call, he talks about nature, the surf of the sea, reptiles, the sky poured out rain. It, it befits someone who spent a lot of time in the outdoors. He, co he, he compliments Paul's emphasis on justification by faith with his own emphasis on spiritual fruitfulness demonstrating faith. If you're really saved, then your life is going to really change. Okay, that's what he's getting to. So James is the most Jewish of all the, uh, all the epistles. All the epistles, it's the most Jewish. And you want to remember there are five, really five messianic epistles. Five of them that are written to Jewish believers in particular. Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, and Jude. These are reading to, written to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, that are under persecution and spread out. So with that, we have an overview, an overview of the book of James. Now this is taken from Chuck Swindoll's work, and he says this. James asserts, in James chapter 1, James asserts that when real faith is stretched, it doesn't break. When real faith is stretched, and I'll tell you, if you're a Christian, <laughs> your faith will be stretched, but it won't break. It produces stability. It produces stability. In chapter 2, he says this. James' assertion is this, is that when real faith is pressed, when real faith is squeezed, it doesn't fail. Instead, it produces genuine love. Real faith fights against prejudice indifference. It, it fights against dry intellectual belief. Real faith has grit. Real faith will not quit. In chapters 3 and 4, he asserts this, that genuine faith is expressed with control and humility, not arrogance. Not arrogance. Not that I have more faith than you. Ha, ha, ha. No, it's not arrogant. We express our faith in many ways. We express it verbally, emotionally, volitionally. But it is, it is with humility, not arrogance. And in chapter 5, he says this. James asserts this. When real faith is distressed, it doesn't panic. Now, folks, we've had lots of chances to panic in this church. When real faith is pressed, it will not panic. Instead, it produces patience. And, it, it, and I love it. I will trust in the Lord until I die. It has patience. Real faith has patience. And James deals with everyday situations, having patience in these everyday situations. He talks about sickness. He talks about money matters. He talks about how to deal with fellow Christians who aren't walking with the Lord. There's no panic. There is just patience in dealing with those situations. Now, with that brief introduction, we have verse 1. 
And that's all we have for today. A slave? Really. A slave? Question mark? Really. Because the connotation of a slave is so bad that no one can ever even consider being a slave. But I want to show you that being a slave of the Lord Jesus is something we want. Something we want. Verse 1, James, a bondservant. It actually is Jacobus. Jacobus in the Hebrew. A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is it addressed to? To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad because they're being persecuted. Diaspora. Greetings. Greetings. So James, number one. James addresses distressed believers. Now, who is not distressed at some point in this Christian walk? As a matter of fact, when you have moments of peace, enjoy it. Wallow in it. Roll in it like the dog rolling, scratching its back on the grass. Just roll around a little bit in your, in your moment of peace. These people are in the dispersion and from persecution. And, and again, the, when I say the diaspora or the dispersion, that is, any Jew that is living outside the land is, is considered to be in dispersion. There will be a time in the millennial reign of Christ when every Jew will be in the land. There will be no more Jews occupying other places on earth. They will all be in the land. But now they are dispersed all over the place. And I want you to think about something. I think this can apply for Christians. Because I think it, that, that the diaspora for us is living here as aliens and strangers. We are not in the land. We are not in our home. We are not where we're going to be forever. And we are experiencing pressure living outside the land. We are, in essence, in the diaspora. Some of our brothers and sisters are, exp are experiencing extreme persecution. As a matter of fact, the persecution in this century is greater than any persecution any century prior to this. That is how much people are being persecuted and killed for their faith throughout this world. James does not play off his pedigree. Notice he says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you see that combo, he is equating Jesus with God. Jesus equal with God. Jesus is deity in human flesh. James does not play off his pedigree. He says that he is a bondservant, a bondservant. He doesn't go around saying, I'm Jesus' brother. I knew Jesus way before you knew Jesus. That's what we would do. I knew Willie Mays. I, was, I grew up with Willie Mays. Now, Willie Mays was a baseball player, so who would be a common baseball player? Uh, Derek Jeter. I grew up with Derek Jeter. I mean, we, we would play off of that. I deserve to be esteemed for who I am. I'm the leader of the church in Jerusalem. I'm the number one because I was related to Jesus. It's all about position and power and prestige with humanity. But oh no, when you're a bondservant, you sublimate all those desires. And he calls himself a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew Jesus as his brother. The word bondservant is doulos, and it means a slave totally possessed by his master. A slave totally possessed by his master. Now, the following is what James meant by being a bondservant. The following is what he meant. Characteristics of a bondservant. See if you can identify any of these in anyone you know. <laughs> okay? A bondservant was owned by his master. He was totally possessed by his master. James knew after the resurrection 
that Christ loved him, that Christ bought him, and he was now the possession of Christ, and he loved it. It wasn't like, oh, I'm a slave of Jesus. Oh, no. No, it was the best place he could possibly be. Now, the, I want you to realize that believers, all of us, when we say yes to Jesus, we belong to him. We belong to him. Remember in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, we went through this last, last week, knowing this, that our old man died with him. The moment I believed, my old man died with him. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I belong to the Lord Jesus. And this is carried out, if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19-20. This is what it says. Now, I want you to think about, you belong to Christ. It says in verse, I'll start in verse 18, since it's a good verse. Flee sexual immorality. Talking about your flesh. Talking about your soul wanting to have its way. Remember, sexual immorality is any, any sexual sin, that is any sexual relation that is outside the marriage covenant. He says, flee from that. Run from it. Run for your life. And then he says this, every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And that word temple is naos. I don't know if you wrote that down. We've gone through this before. Naos, N-A-O-S. And that means the holy of holies. Your body is the holy of holies, just like in the tabernacle or in the temple where the Holy of Holies, where God manifested himself with the Shekinah glory and the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, and that is where the glory of God dwelt. Well, you are where the glory of God dwells. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he dwells within you. That's what we want to know here. We are the temple. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you whom you have from God. You are not your own. That is the point here. We do not belong to ourselves. For we were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We belong to God. We belong to God. Secondly, secondly, a bondservant existed for his master, and he had no other reason for existence. No other reason for existence. Thirdly, a bondservant served his master, and he existed only for the purpose of service. He was at the master's disposal. How do you like this one? Any hour of the day. Not one hour on Sunday. Not an hour on Tuesday. Not 15 minutes here. But any minute of the day, you were at the disposal of the master. And when he said something, you did it. You came coming. That's exact. Any hour of the day. So it was with James. He lived only to serve Christ, hour by hour, day by day. Fourthly, a bondservant's will belonged to his master. He was allowed no will, no ambition, other than the will and ambition of the master. He was completely subservient to the master and owed, and owed total obedience to the will of the master. Again, a lot of times people are repulsed by this. Humans are repulsed because... We have our rights. I have my rights. I have a right to live my life the way I want to. And I'm in charge of my life. No, you're not. 
Not if you've died with Christ. People are repulsed by this. But I want you to think about being a slave of God. Remember this. God is loving. Pure, complete love. A love that we cannot even imagine. A love that just embraces humanity like you cannot believe. That is number one. He is loving. He is kind. He is gentle. He is long-suffering. He is giving. And no one, no one, no one will ever care for you like Jesus. No one will ever care for you like Jesus, the Master. And I want to show you something. If you want to know what Jesus' personality is like, you want to know what this Jesus, our God that we serve, what he really is like, well, he gave us a little sneak peek in, in Matthew eleven twenty eight when he says this, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened. And what did he say? I will give you rest. You know what that means? That means when you go to the University of Michigan Hospital, I will give you rest. When you're in Bronson Hospital dying and your family's around you, I will give you rest. And he says this, take my yoke upon me and learn from me. This is his personality. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Who would not want to be a slave of Jesus? I mean, that's like the best deal going. That's the best deal going. It all depends on who you're a slave to. If you're a slave of Jesus, nothing is better. If to the world or another person, that's awful. But to Jesus, it's the best thing that can happen to you. And, and, and I want you to emphasize this. James called him the Lord Jesus Christ, the kurios, master, ruler, owner. Anytime you call Jesus Christ Lord, you are saying, I give up everything for you, Lord Jesus. You own me fully, fully, master, ruler, owner, for eternity, for eternity, even now. In eternity, we will bow willingly before our Lord, and we will say, Lord Jesus, you are Lord, master, ruler, owner, belly flopper. That's exactly what we're going to be doing. No question about it. And finally, fifthly, a bondservant was the most precious thing, it's going to be emphasized again, that James meant by a slave of Jesus Christ. He meant he had the highest and most honored and kingly profession in the world. It was an honor. The believer's slavery to Jesus Christ is no cringing, cowardly, shameful subjection. It is a position of honor. The honor that's bestowed upon a man that, that has privileges and responsibilities of serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I want to show you who was called a slave in Scripture. These guys were slaves in Scripture. You want to be known as a slave. Connect your name to this. Moses was the slave of God. Joshua was the slave of God. These are tremendous men in Scripture. David the king was a slave of God. Paul was a slave of the Lord Jesus. James said he was a slave of God and the Lord Jesus. Jude was a slave of God. The prophets were called slaves of God. And you know who else is called slaves of God? Believers are called slaves of God. In 1 Corinthians 7.22, Ephesians 6.6, 6, Colossians 4.12, now, with this definition, with this, with this definition, how many bond servants do you know? How many do you know? This truly is someone conformed to the likeness of Christ, and someone that is a bond servant has dealt with, 
their soulish issues. Remember we talked about the soul last week? And how the soul wants to dominate will, thoughts, and emotions? And unless that is brought under control by the spirit, it will try to dominate. It will try to take you back to its old ways. There are few bondservants in the church today. And this probably will not happen. Being a bondservant probably will not happen without suffering. Isn't that something? We just won't relent unless we suffer. Suffering drives us to deep faith in God. The greatest honor we have is to be a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. James went from an unbeliever to a bondservant. What a leap, a bondservant of Christ. An unbeliever to, boom, I am all in. I am not, not just half in. Not just tip your toe in and say, oh, I like a little Jesus here. Ooh, a little one. No, all in. That's what he was all in. Full commitment. Now, and again, he called him the Lord Jesus. Kurios, master, ruler, owner. This same James knew him intimately as his brother. He lived a common life with Jesus. And when he... When Jesus appeared to him, he was miraculously saved, and his life changed drastically. One man wrote this about the commonness of James' life with Jesus. Think about this. this these are real people living out a real situation. James, listen, just picture this. James, had, James lived as a brother of Jesus for years. Day in and day out, hour by hour, month by month, year by year, James had played, eaten, worked, slept, gone to school with Jesus. He had roamed the surrounding hills with Jesus as a boy. He, he saw him at play with other children and related to his neighbors and, and adults of their neighborhood. James, had, James saw how his brother received and responded to adult instruction. He had also probably seen Jesus take over the head of a household when his father Joseph died. Just imagine the day, the month, the years that he spent with Jesus. It was all so common. It was all so common. We jump all over James and his brothers because they don't believe in Jesus, but it was all so normal for them to go through life. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes out and says, I'm the Messiah. I knew you're a really good guy, Jesus, but I didn't know you're the Messiah. And they had to have a miracle, just like everybody else needs a miracle, to change their life. But now James calls him the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1. In verse two, chapter 2, verse 1, he calls the Lord who is glorious. In chapter 5, verse 7, the Lord who is coming again. In 5.8, says, the Lord whose coming is near. The point is this, is that James no longer saw Jesus as his brother. He saw Jesus as God incarnate. And I'll tell you, for the 12 tribes of Israel that are scattered, being persecuted, being run down, having their heads cut off, and who else, who knows what else is going on to them, this is good news, that Jesus Christ is God. This is good to know when you're facing the pressures of life, when you're running for your life, to know that Jesus is glorious. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is near to the brokenhearted. And Jesus is for you. You need to know that. Being persecuted and dying for the faith, suffering for your faith like many throughout the world, you need to know that your Jesus is for you. James is writing to the Jews and those in all of history spread all over the world, then and now, being persecuted severely for simply 
believing in Jesus. Simply believing in him. They're not causing an insurrection. They were not a threat to Rome. They were not a threat to Rome or to Caesar. They were simply telling others about Jesus and his love, and the roaring lion didn't like it. And what did the roaring lion try to do? At the early church, he tried to devour them. He tried to eat them, and he persecuted them. And Nero's rose up, and Nero's persecuted. Nero was the nemesis, the enemy of the church. Nero's of the world, folks, at various times, in different ways, have always persecuted the followers of Jesus. There's all kinds of Nero's that have come up through history. I want you to think about the Nero at the time of Herod, running Rome at the time that Herod cut off James's head. He was born in 37 A.D. He was educated at the feet of a philosopher named Seneca, and after he was educated by Seneca, he was such a nice guy that he made Seneca commit suicide. How do you like that? This is Nero. Nero murdered his way to the imperial throne. Now, who was he following? He was following his father, the devil, who came to steal, kill, and destroy. He operated just like that. And the Christians resisted him, just like we are supposed to do in 2 Peter. He murdered his way to the imperial throne, which he occupied from 54 to 68 AD. His life was characterized by debauchery, which means anything sensual, any pleasure. He would deny himself nothing. If it was pleasure, he had it. No restrictions, violence. And he caused his own mother to be killed. That's the kind of guy. Extravagance. Whatever he wanted, whomever he wanted, he had. He was God in Rome. That was his, that was his attitude. That's how the people treated him. However, in 64 AD, his life changed. There was a fire that broke out in Rome. And in, in, in he was blamed for the fire. And the people of Rome started to turn on him. But you know what Nero did? In the craftiness of his thinking, being like the slithering serpent Satan, he turned on the Christians. And he blamed the Christians for this. And the Christians already were looked at in, in a downward way by the people of Rome. And fierce persecution broke out. Tacitus says this. Tacitus was a Roman historian. And he says this. The Christians turned in other Christians to avoid persecution. This is very common. James would, would say these would not hesitate to call these dead faith Christians. He would not hesitate to say that. In Matthew 24.10, we know that the ultimate Nero will come to, come to power called the Antichrist. And at that time, Jesus warns, he said, many will be offended and will betray one another. Very common, very common, and will hate one another. See, the ultimate antichrist that comes, people are going to turn. People are going to turn. Persecution brings out, are you true or are you not true? Is your Christianity a deep-seated Christianity or is it just a fluffy, feel-good, everything's great and wonderful Christianity? Is it real or is it false? That's, that's a question there. This is a quote. Tacitus writes this. They were, the, Nero set up and falsely accused as the culprits and punished with the utmost refinement of cruelty, a class hated for their abominations who were commonly called Christians. Can you just hear it kind of like Christians? Christus from whom their name is derived, was executed at the hands of procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. 
check for a moment this pernicious superstition again broke out not only in Judea, the source of the evil, but even in Rome, you see Christianity spread to the capital, Rome. Couldn't stop it. Accordingly, arrest was first made of those confessed to be Christians. And on their evidence, an immense multitude was convicted. L listen to this. Not so much for the charge of arson, which was the original charge, but for their hatred of the human race. They were persecuted for their hate speech. You know what their hate speech was? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Their hate speech was saying, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Their hate speech was saying, Jesus loves you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. That was their hate speech. Reason they were persecuted. And they were persecuted and put to death for the amusement of the Roman community. They were, they were clothed in hides of beasts, torn to death by dogs, crucified, set on fire to illuminate the night. Nero had thrown open his grounds, and he called this the circus. And the Christians were the entertainment. That's the Neros. Neros continue throughout the world today. Many Neros. Persecution goes on, and it goes on, it goes on. But listen to this. For those who endure, the world takes notice. Rome took notice because the, Nero's persecution was so severe that the people started to side with the Christians. They got the attention of the people. One man said this in amazement, what suffering, what faith, end quote. Salt and light, folks. Salt and light, a witness to the end. Remember, you are a witness. The word is martorio. It is where we get, it's the root word, martyr. We are to be witnesses to the end. The crucial question is this. In spite of some defectors, why was that immense multitude of saints so willing to endure this horrible treatment? Why did all of those Christians, they were lined up, and they were kneeled down, and ISIS came and was slitting each one of their throats because they believed in Jesus Christ, and they would not recant. Why would someone willing to endure this horrible treatment? All they had to do was say, no, I won't do it. No, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I will just for a time say, Jesus, just to save my life, but I'll serve you later. No, that's not acceptable. What kept them going? It can only be they had strong evidence that Christianity was genuine. It's true, it's all true, that Jesus of Nazareth, the founder, had risen from the dead, and he offered the hope of eternal life to those who endured in faith. That's what each one of us will hold on to, because we will all pass that precipice one day. And it will be most important, not that you drove your Lexus, not that you had your new ping golf clubs, although there's nothing wrong with those, okay? Not that you had whatever special toy you thought was special, but that you knew Jesus Christ. That you endured because he endured for you. They had the Holy Spirit power to persevere. Remember in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, talking about those saints who persevered by faith. 
Some of them were victorious, some of them were sawn in two, but each one of them were that great cloud of witnesses. Since we are surrounded by such a great loud crowd of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin or weight that so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, our race set before us, looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he ran his race, endured the cross, despising its shame, and now he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is our model. Jesus is the one that we follow. In Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead, somehow accomplishing the Father's will in our lives. That is the goal. It is tragic, folks, a tragic footnote in history that Rome eventually became the focal point of an egregious apostasy. The church turned away from faith. Can the church today learn anything from this? Faith without works is dead faith. Conclusion. A slave? Really. I hope you can say that. Really. Chuck Swindoll, I quote this in his closing remarks, in his, his treatise on this, says this, the first century Christians were struggling and they needed some straight talk from someone who would help them reform. Today, many of us need that same clear-cut guidance. Our vocabularies are bulging with all the right words. We have the Christianese. A lot of people have it down to an art. But our lifestyles are anemic from lack of spiritual substance. We may know the way but we need to be stirred to walk in the way. James will help you do just that, end quote. Remember this, being a slave in the world or to the world is awful, but a slave really to Jesus is so wonderful. It is the highest honor on earth. There will be no cringing. There will be no, no cowardliness, no shameful subjection. It is a position of honor. It is a position of honor and it is a privilege to be a slave, a bondservant of Jesus. And only bondservant of Jesus will have the metal to stand against the Nero's of our world. You won't do this as a powder puff Christian. You won't do this lukewarm with your foot half in and half out. When the, when the rubber meets the road, you are going to have to be a sold-out Christian. So like Paul, at the end of his life, so like Polycarp, when they at age 86 tied him up and were burning him at the stake and said, we will stop the flames if you will just recant. And he says, 86 years I have served my God and I will not change now. As he's being burned, the early church was, was persecuted and those throughout the world our Christian brothers and sisters are being persecuted. And so like Paul, a slave, a bondservant of Jesus, maybe you too can say, when you're fully sold out, 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight because Paul was facing death at this point. His time was over. And folks, we will all face that river, that Jordan, that time when we're crossing over. 
And we want to have a life that says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And maybe like in Philippians 3.10, you can say, I have accomplished the Father's will for me. I did what Jesus called me to do. I lived this life. So when it was over, I made a difference. It meant something. It wasn't powder puff Christianity. It wasn't just in case Christianity. It was all out for Jesus Christianity. A slave, really, you bet. A slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing better. End well, folks. End well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. We know that your word is truth. We know that the Lord Jesus came to die for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. He does sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, making intercession for us. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So, Father, right now, whoever hears this in this room or on a CD someplace, that they come to the point where they say, Yes, Jesus, I believe you died for me. And like James and like Paul and like Jude and like Moses and like the old, all the people we mentioned, I'm a slave. I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus. I will be all in in serving him. That is where we find our greatest pleasure. And that is where we find our purpose for life. That is the thing that takes away the darkness and brings in the light into our lives. Lord, I don't understand everything that happens in lives. I don't understand why tragedies come with little children or, or all the things that we can think of. But I know that I can trust you to the end. You have proven yourself faithful. Now may, through your power, we be faithful till we get the Father's house. Thank you for this time to study your word, and we look forward to what James has to teach us regarding trials next week. In Jesus' name, amen.